Growing up, my dad taught my brother and my uncles and my cousin Chad and me how to fish with a cast net. Cast net fishing became a metaphor in how my dad discipled us. A cast net is a massive circular net with a rope affixed to its epicenter, and the outer edge of the net is lined with these weights, and it's either shaped into a bag to drag along the seafloor where the excess netting along the circumference traps the fish, as in a bag, or fashioned into a trap that envelops the fish when it's cast from a pier, which is a braille net. He was fascinated by the moment that Peter and other disciples immediately dropped their nets to follow Jesus. And so he researched what kind of nets these were and found the oldest man at the Fort Pickens Pier that he could find, and he offered to barter with him if the old man would teach him how to cast net fish. As the summers approached throughout my childhood, my cousin Chad and I had to throw three perfect circles with our cast nets in the grass before we could get some roast beef after church. You put part of the lead line into your mouth and you toss just the right portion of the weight over your shoulder and you swing it forward and then backward and then throw it forward with enough torsion to allow centripetal force to spin the net into a circle, letting go of the portion in your teeth at the last second. And sometimes you throw the net and it comes out like in the shape of the state of Idaho, but sometimes it comes out in a circle. And cast nets are about the only way to catch a delicious type of fish known as a mullet. Not the haircut, important distinction, the fish. <laughs> mullet hear you talking, so you have to be quiet the whole time. There are stingray on the sea floor, so you have to drag your feet as you wade forward so you don't get Steve Irwin. And we would line up, we'd make an arc, try to herd the fish into a shallow estuary, and then cast in the direction of the trap in the order of net size from 7 feet to 20 feet. And when you trap a bunch of them, the surface of the water comes to life, and you can rack up to like 40 mullet in a single cast, nearing your legal limit in a single exhilarating moment. One time my brother saw like the soft green phosphorescent glow of jellyfish around my net just as I was putting my lead line in my mouth. A detached jellyfish cynical stung me right on the tongue, and my brother hollered, my, bro my brother whispered, don't holler, Jess, don't holler. <laughs> Another time, a pinfish tangled my net, and the only way to get my net free was to bite the live pinfish into pieces and to spit them out. But the hardest job of all in cast net fishing was carrying the bag. Most of the casts we threw came back empty or with just one or two fish, and while we would trek shoulder to shoulder through the water at night, those stray catches are put into a mesh bag, fastened to a sling, thrown over the shoulder of one unlucky team member. Mullet are designed with these spiky pectoral fins that stab the living snot out of you as you carry the bag. But again, you cannot holler when you're impaled because you'll scare off the siblings of the mullet stabbing you from the bag. When we would load the cooler of fish and the cast nets into the back of the truck, my dad would tell me and Chad, boys, if you find a woman who will carry the bag, marry her. Such a woman will stand by you through financial hard times, through sickness, through cancer, through loss of limb. So growing up, this became a term that Chad and I used to describe the kind of serious godly girlfriend who would genuinely potentially become your wife. Even into college and beyond, we would ask, is this girlfriend of yours the kind of woman who would carry the bag? And when I had just started off as a youth pastor and my small business with drumming and teaching drum lines was getting off the ground, I was dating a woman. She joined my family and I at Big Lagoon. It's a state park between the mainland of Florida and Perdido Key. We beached my Uncle Larry's catamaran and fired up the grill. Chad and I took our cast nets out into the water and chatted as we were casting. I was facing out into the water toward Perdido Key and the gulf beyond it, and Chad was facing the shore. And he suddenly stopped talking. 
And I looked at his wide eyes as he looked toward the shore behind me. And I was just sure there was a shark until he spat out his lead line and pointed and said, she's carrying the bag. I turned around to see the woman that I had brought with me carrying the mullet bag out to us. And behind her on the shore, my parents were jumping up and down with their hands raised. She carried the bag. So I married her. Let's look at the book of Proverbs together. You're going to see beautiful marital advice that's sometimes difficult to accept. All right, we're going to end all of Proverbs with chapter 31, which describes the godly wife. Last week, we looked at a portion from Proverbs that speaks about marriage and intimacy in particular, largely addressing that toward men. We're going to review a few of those verses along with our curriculum, Explore the Bible. But then I want to look at every other proverb that pertains to marriage. And you're going to find beautiful wisdom, okay? That this wisdom is still applicable and still positively life-changing and still relevant after 4,000 years proves the Bible to be the truth. Just watch. Okay, my skeptical friend, if the words of these Proverbs strike you as true, then you are faced with a beautiful dilemma. You have acknowledged the truth of God's word, and both you and I lack the authority to choose which passages are true and which passages are not. So may the truthfulness of these truths set your heart free. You've been clamoring for wisdom and truth, and you've arrived upon it, man. You did not tune into this message by happenstance. Rather, you were drawn here by the Holy Spirit, pulled near by the sovereign God of the universe who's about to prove from his own word that he's real and by that same word of God, save your soul before we are finished today. Indeed, I saw the truth of my dad's wisdom over and over again in my own marriage. I saw how that same beautiful woman who carried the bag for us stayed by my side through incredible difficulties. And I've been amazed at just how indestructible a marriage actually can be. I've found that people today really underestimate what a marriage can not only survive, but grow through. We will survey these Proverbs that speak directly about marriage, but members of Highlands currently gifted with singleness, there will be wisdom for you as well from God's Word, particularly when we show these truths in parallel with Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 7, which deal with singleness. Let's begin with two Proverbs. Right? Proverbs 18.22 and Proverbs 19.14. Proverbs 18.22 says, A man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14 reads, A house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Jesse, why do these two seem to be in conflict with one another? Proverbs 18.22 says a a man who finds a wife, while Proverbs 19.14 says that a prudent wife is from the Lord. So which is it? I'm so glad that we studied Romans 9 on the sovereignty of God. You see, we make decisions and we experience life as though we have freedom in many regards, but God has already written the ending. From our perspective, we are evaluating options, employing biblical discernment and making decisions, but God is ultimately sovereign over all things and absolutely foreknows all things, including whom we would marry. My bride and I put our kids on a scavenger hunt. They followed the clues and the guide that we provided, uh, as in like their scavenger hunt Bible. 
They knew that their father loved them and had good things in store for them, so they trusted me. You follow me? Single people who are hoping to be married one day. I commissioned them and watched them make decisions, but I had already written the ending. If they got off track, I put them back on track. If they ever got frustrated and wanted to sit there, I would pick them up and put them back on their commissioning. Here is a glimpse of the Campbell Kids scavenger hunt. Would you trust single people who are seeking out a spouse one day? Would you trust that your father loves you? He's already written the ending. And would you join him on his mission and find there the spouse that he has already foreknown for you? Proverbs 18.22, a man who finds a wife and finds what is good, is intended as a kick in the idle bachelor's tail. And Proverbs 19.14, that a good wife is from the Lord, is a reminder of where your marriage even came from. So coupling them together, God has a wife for you, Christian, bachelor. So, Go and find her. Now I want to review a few of the verses that we covered last week, but I want to try to apply them more directly to the context of married couples rather than speaking directly to men. Proverbs 5.15 Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the, in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. This is a call to abide and enjoy deeply the intimacy that is preserved for husband and wife. You'll find that intimacy in many regards is both an indicator of marital health and also something that can bring about marital health. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul was writing to answer an important question that was asked. When he uses the term virgins here contextually, he's speaking particularly about young women who have never been married before. And in this teaching, members of Highlands who are currently gifted with singleness, you'll find some instructions that apply quite directly to you. And in married couples, you'll find some other counsel that is in direct parallel with what we just read in Proverbs 5. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not as a command. Nothing like this had ever been said before. In an era in which wives were seen as the property of the husband, this teaching in the original context showed showed husbands that their bodies did not belong to them. It took a sledgehammer to the double standard. Look at the text. Intimacy is to be reciprocal. 
Men, you have been obligated by the word of God to see to the fulfillment of your bride's intimacy needs and desires. Likewise, brides are to fulfill their husband's needs. If each of you focuses primarily on the needs of the other, you will be selflessly satisfied and content as long as your bodies capacitate it. Married couples, observe these teachings about intimacy. And don't use intimacy as a bargaining chip. Don't use it to manipulate the other, even when you're mad at one another. Intimacy is both a thermostat and a thermometer in your relationship. A lack of intimacy in a marriage is a huge red flag, just like a lack of healthy conflict can be. Simultaneously, intimacy is more than a physical act, and so it has a spiritually healing effect on a marriage that is emotionally rocky or distant. Consider the paradox of a marriage that is suffering from distance or misalignment and symptomatically suffers from a lack of intimacy. Consider the self-defeating nature in such a context of withholding one of the most effective sacred acts that could help to heal the discord and literally physically close the distance to the utmost between husband and wife. Do not choose to withhold the one thing that brings you closer than anything else when you're drifting apart. A marriage without intimacy in some form is in grave danger and a breeding ground for destructive temptations. A marriage that is marked with healthy and frequent, mutually selfless intimacy is likely thriving and more likely to continue to thrive. I've seen firsthand couples who were given a satanic distortion of 1 Corinthians 7, this call to take some time apart. It was a distortion of this biblical counsel and I need to counter that false teaching right now. Right? There is no such thing as a biblical separation that is even remotely long-term. This text, 1 Corinthians 7, ironically used to justify that, it patently, obviously speaks against the practice of a husband and wife being apart for an extended period of time. Do, do you see these words in verse 5? Then come together again. Yeah, you actually have to come back together again. You cannot abandon your spouse with no intentions of ever coming back together again and then rationalize what is technically a divorce on the grounds of 1 Corinthians 7 when 1 Corinthians 7 tells you to come back together again with your spouse, even when he's suggesting separation without issuing a command. See verse 6. Now, look to verse 7. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. So, people currently gifted with singleness, did you see Paul's deliberate wording in verse 7? Paul was a celibate bachelor whose entire life was dedicated to his gospel ministry in reaching Gentiles, planting churches on missionary journeys, and being used as an instrument of the Holy Spirit to write much of the New Testament. He said in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7 that he wishes all people were the same way as he. He then explains that each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another person has that. So singleness is actually a gift from God. Skip down to verse 25 and and see more. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. 
Okay, married couples watching this sermon, be careful how loudly you say amen to that last part when Paul says that married people will have trouble in this life and that he's trying to spare you. Look at verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Wow. Be devoted to the Lord without distraction. He, of course, has a solid point. In fact, when he would later write the pastoral epistles, which we studied last year, he drew from a pastor or deacon's ability to lead his family well, to distinguish those qualified for ministry versus those not yet qualified or those not currently qualified. I am the lead pastor of two ministries. Okay, one is Highlands Community Church and the other is my family. If I fail at Highlands Community Church, I'll always have my family. However, if I fail leading my family while ostensibly succeeding at Highlands Community Church, then I have disqualified myself from ministry and have actually failed both ministries. You see, to be devoted wholeheartedly to ministry and to ministry exclusively, this frees someone up from the other potential downfalls of ministry. Paul was not leaving a wife behind to go on his missionary journeys. He was not abandoning his, his responsibilities as a father when he went on his missionary journeys. So if you're currently gifted with singleness, would you consider what it is that God hopes to achieve through this season in your life? So we've seen this teaching in Proverbs 5. We will see more in Proverbs 31. But I want to give some important context for all the other teachings in Proverbs regarding marriage. The Holy Spirit, through Solomon, does not give practical marital advice beyond this teaching in chapter 5, instructing husbands to drink deeply from their own cisterns. Rather, it contains broad statements about marriage itself. Now, I know that sounds like I'm playing games of semantics. Jesse, what's the difference between giving marital advice and making wisdom statements about marriage itself? Proverbs zooms out to observe marriage from above and does not zoom in to give practical tips and pointers for how to resolve specific conflicts. For example, Proverbs 19.14 teaches us that a godly wife is from the Lord. That gives us a perspective on marriage that is zoomed out so far, it reminds us of the sovereignty of God and where your spouse even came from and how your godly marriage came to be. An imaginary proverb like, husbands should do the dishes for any meal they don't cook, would be very specific advice. The majority of proverbs about marriage after chapter 5, with the exception of the final proverb, which will have its own sermon, warn about the shameful, destructive, or nagging wife. Here they are collected, accounting for the reiteration of Proverbs 21.9 in Hezekiah's Greatest Hits collection in chapter 25. Now, before you write off the book of Proverbs because you're not married, and before you get mad at me personally for teaching this book, which last week seemed like a pep rally for men, and this week seems to harp on women who nag, remember two vitally important things. One, the original audience of Proverbs, and two, the deliberate structure of Proverbs. I know that when you read through Proverbs, sometimes it can be frustrating because he'll seem to jump around from point to point. It's difficult to crystallize a given chapter into a singular point. It's baked in this way deliberately. These teachings about the nagging wife 
always come within a few verses of an admonition to men, specifically to manage their finances well. That's not a coincidence. When there's dysfunction in one area of your life, when there's a lack of wisdom in one area of your life, there's likely dysfunction and a lack of wisdom in another area of your life, all right? Poor management of finances is one of the favored anthems of nagging wives the world over. Originally, Proverbs was written to young men. In fact, many of the Proverbs were spoken first to Solomon's own sons, even arranged in an alphabetical acrostic fashion in the original Hebrew. One line starting with Aleph or A, the next line or couplet starting with Beit or B, the next line starting with Gimel and so on, so as to reinforce the Hebrew alphabet for his sons while dispensing wisdom line by line. This does not mean that the wisdom in Proverbs is useless or irrelevant to women and unmarried men. Rather, teachings like hatred stirs up conflicts, but love com- co- covers all offenses, Proverbs 10, 12. Teachings that comprise 97 plus percent of the book obviously apply to everyone. Instead, this explains why Proverbs about women are warnings about women. They were originally given to young men to prepare them for marriage. When viewed in a table format like this, it can easily paint a misogynistic picture of Proverbs or even the Bible as a whole. So I hesitate even to present this table for fear of misrepresenting the book. However, the structure of Proverbs bakes these warnings into rigorous and demanding instructions and uh, and, and warnings for men. Here are the nagging wife Proverbs. Now, Here is a graph giving us the perspective on the number of Proverbs on wisdom in general compared to the number of Proverbs that name the nagging wife, discounting the reiterations of chapter 25. The score is 897 to 3. That means that 99.67% of Proverbs speak to wisdom at large, while these warnings to Solomon's sons about the nagging wife comprise 0.33% of the entire book. So, my militant feminist friend, you cannot dismiss all of Proverbs as a misogynistic book. Moreover, while these verses comprise only one-third of one percent of the entire book, they are still inspired by God and are just as valid as John 3.16. I also believe that we would agree with them, even you, my militant feminist friend, because no one wants to be the nagging wife, especially not the nagging wife herself. So, let's study them briefly. Proverbs 21.9. Better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. Proverbs 21, 19. Better to to live in a wilderness than with a nagging and hot-tempered wife. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16. An endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are alike. The one who controls her controls the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Let's define nagging as mildly hostile and futile negativity, often manifesting in the form of, but not limited to, endlessly repeated directions as given to a stubborn child or merciless reminders of past failures. You will notice that none of these Proverbs provides any instruction to the husband. There is no how to respond counsel provided by Solomon in these verses. Solomon is not telling his sons to literally move out of his bedroom and onto the corner of his roof. I actually told my wife I would do that during a conflict once. It did not go well for me. These are not directives. In fact, Proverbs 27:16 even gives an elegant metaphor to say that it is impossible to control a nagging wife, just as it is impossible to control the wind or grasp oil in your hand. Rather, 
Nagging is a symptom of a spiritual problem in one or both parties in the marriage. Men, if you have your stuff together, if you are living out of wisdom in the, in the, in the rest of the book of Proverbs, you are almost guaranteed not to have a nagging wife. Husbands, instead of nagging, will sometimes resort to emotionally distancing themselves. It's very rare for a husband to nag. Instead of nagging, sometimes husbands will just disconnect emotionally and drift off, or it may manifest itself in a more hostile form like verbal abuse, and God forbid, physical abuse. So husbands, if your wife is nagging you, would you examine your own heart? And would you likewise look at these admonitions against the nagging wife and see if you are likewise guilty of some of the same behaviors merely in male form? Sisters in Christ, your nagging is not good for either of you. Okay, hold on to your chair. Are you ready for this? You cannot change your husband. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. In the history of marriage, no woman has ever nagged her husband into a better man. Legendary women have successfully nagged to have the garbage taken out and the attic cleaned and the gutter swept, but absolutely zero women in the history of all nagdom have ever used nagging to successfully change a man's heart and solve the root problem that is at play. It is an historically failed stratagem that actually damages the marriage in the long run. Proverbs 14.1, every wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. Husband, if your wife nags your tail off, there is probably a reason. And I can almost guarantee that your procrastination to take the smelly garbage out, your principled stance in refusing to finally part with your disco wardrobe that crowds the attic, and your fear of falling from a ladder at the gutters to your embarrassing death are just the tip of the iceberg as to why your wife nags you. Your laziness in these menial tasks might be why she is currently nagging you, but they are not sufficient reasons for a sane woman to nag you in general. No one hates to nag more than the nagging wife. Look at what you've caused her to resort to. She has become what she hates. Have you ever been to one of those preschool graduations and heard a little girl saying to the microphone that she wants to grow up to become a nagging wife? Look at what you've done to this woman, man. Get your act together and get your act together on a spiritual level and then just watch the nagging disappear and eventually give way to the respect that you crave. My wife does not nag me. And that's not because she's innately superior to your wife. I mean, she is, but that's beside the point. She used to nag me, but then I did this crazy thing like repent from my sin and get my integrity back. And now she shows me respect because as a person of integrity, she can. All of this needs to be given with a qualification though. Some nagging is an indicator of a spiritual problem on the wife's part. Some brides resent their husbands and refuse to acknowledge the authority of the biblical model for marriage. Some nagging is also a symptom of grief. Mary Todd Lincoln is the queen of all nagging wives, and her husband, you know, ended slavery. However, much of her belligerent hostility toward her husband was just a symptom of her grief over their son's death. Even in this, these, these cases, though, husbands, look through the nagging to see the underlying cause. Go back to basics here. Ephesians 5, 31, reiterating Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what marriage is. 
To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. Dr. Emerson Egerton describes a functional marriage as a cycle of love from the husband, promoting respect from the wife, which promotes love from the husband, which promotes respect from the wife. And when that cycle moves in the opposite direction with an unloving husband promoting disrespect from his wife, which promotes unloving behavior from the husband, which, which then perpetuates the disrespect from the wife, it falls to you, husbands, to lead your family well. You must respond to disrespect with love. That's an easy concept to grasp intellectually, but one of the most difficult disciplines in the human experience to actually implement in the heat of a nagging conflict. Repent from your sin, husbands. Act like Christ. Treat your bride like his church. Love her when, for reasons beyond your control, she nags you, and let the Holy Spirit minister comfort to her heart that will reconcile your marriage. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Now, let's go on to some other Proverbs about marriage. Like Proverbs 12, 4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. My fellow members of Highlands Community Church currently gifted with singleness, it's about character. If God's calling you to marriage one day, remember this, you marry one another's character. The wealth will come and go. The health will mostly just go. Maturity will come, and in fact, the two of you will mature together, but there is absolutely no substitute for godly character in a spouse. A spouse with tons of money and no godly character will eventually abandon you. A spouse with perfect health and no godly character will not spare you tragedy. A spouse with model good looks and no godly character will become the most ugly person on this planet to you. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Her inner beauty, the noble character, brings him public honor, i.e. his crown. Her public sin, as in causing him shame, however, causes him inner pain, rottenness in his bones. Fellow members of Highlands currently gifted with singleness, Take these things to heart if God is calling you to be married one day. Do not fall for the unbiblical idea of soulmates. Do not prioritize compatibility over gospel-centeredness. Two people who are compatible may have an easier time and fewer frivolous conflicts in their first 10 years of marriage, but there is no more paramount thing to have in common with your spouse than the gospel which defines us all and the Holy Spirit who changes us. Take your checklist and turn it on yourself. If God is calling you to be married one day, May you work on your own godly character in the meantime. My dad was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. If you marry a girl who will carry the bag, she'll stick with you through incredible hardship. My bride has stayed with me through financial hardship, through the loss of a child, and through a lot of downs but more ups and our marriage is stronger because of it. I have watched this text of Proverbs proven true in my own marriage. You see, the purpose of marriage is to represent the gospel, wherein husbands represent Christ, 
brides represent the church. This is where Ephesians 5 comes from. This is, this is the metaphor that runs from Eden, the first marriage, to Revelation, the final miracle of all miracles at a wedding, where the first miracle of Jesus is at a wedding, the last miracle is at a wedding. This is why the metaphor ran the length of the Old Testament prophets, wherein the people of God represented the bride, and the, and the prophet stood in the place of the husband. This metaphor of God and his people being represented by marriage itself, with the husband and the wife, is scripture wide and all of redemptive history one day culminates at a wedding, the marriage feast of the lamb. Every time we take communion, we commemorate and remember, we remember Jesus and his broken body and his spilled blood. But one day we will eat with him and drink with him at the marriage supper of the lamb. All of this began with a wedding in Eden and it culminates in a wedding in heaven. We as the church are the bride. And so every marriage then is a replica of the gospel. Husbands, we are to represent Christ. Brides represent the church. This is why the husband leads the way. It's not because he's innately superior. It's because this is his role to play. And of course, the wife represents Christ in her own individual walk. But the two of them together are a picture of the gospel. This has never failed my marriage and it's never failed any of the countless marriages that I've counseled as a pastor at Highlands Community Church. I've seen marriages from the absolute brink of hostile divorce be beautifully restored by the power of the gospel because they've adhered to this biblical model. I'm so grateful. I'm so eternally grateful. My wife is the second best thing in my life to the gospel. I'm so grateful that I married a woman who would carry the bag, who would stick with me through thick and thin, who would represent all of the redeemed, to represent the church herself in the context of our marriage. Because if it were not for that gospel, if it were not for the Holy Spirit's intervention, working in our marriage, checking my heart when I'm doing things that cause my wife to nag, convicting my wife when she likewise would sin to bring healing. If it were not for that gospel, I don't know how marriage would really work. All of it then is a picture of the gospel itself. If this advice, my skeptical friends, sounds really good to you, I want to bring you face to face with the beautiful dilemma that you face right now. I mean, if you look at this advice about nagging and you're like, man, I've never seen that written anywhere else before. You're exactly right. And if you're like, man, that is absolutely true. You're absolutely right. This is the word of God, my friend. This is the intent of marriage to be a picture of the gospel. This is the sole means by which God has ordained the procreation of our species. And it is beautiful. And it's a picture of the very same redemption that I'm offering you right now. If your marriage suffers from conflict, you need the Holy Spirit to mediate between the two. And this, is, this applies to single people as well. If you want to be ready for marriage one day, or if you just find a similar dysfunction in all of, your, all of your relationships, there is no other mediator better than the great counselor, the Holy Spirit himself. If that Holy Spirit of God is drawing upon your heart right now, my skeptical friend, to convict you that the words that I've read today are absolutely true, then this is the day that you're saved. Did you come to be a part of the bride of Christ collectively? This is the day that your marriage will absolutely never be the same again because you'll know where it came from. It came from the Lord. You'll know where it's going. It's all going back to the Lord. 
So would you join in the beautiful love story that is the gospel, God, the groom, wooing us, the church, to save us for his own glory. If the Holy Spirit of God is drawing upon your heart, would you pray with me right now? God's words out to God. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. And I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.